Carmen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Carnival. How are we doing? I hope this episode of The Musical Man finds you well. Me, myself, I am feeling a bit under the weather. I hope that we can get through this without my voice completely falling apart. But we're here and we are determined to bring this coverage of Carnival to you. I have a couple of announcements, though, before we get into that coverage. Our next main feed episode is going to drop Wednesday, March 22nd. That's right, we're taking a a fairly sizable break because Chris and I are moving. We are leaving Chicago. We are going to Minneapolis. That's right. Chris has a new job, and I'm going to continue my work on this show. And Patty and Benny, just so you know, they are going nowhere. We got through the whole vast, dark, hunk, chunk majority of the COVID era via Zoom. We learned a lot of lessons during that era. I think that's fair to say. And we are going to apply that knowledge to this next era of the show. So, yes, I will not be in the stage left studio anymore, but of course, Patty and Benny, they are free to utilize this space and they are going to take advantage of it. I I am very excited to learn about their upcoming projects, how they plan to use this space, but I I will not be here. And it's, it's a very sad development. It's very hard for me to process. I'm trying not to get, you know, too bogged down in the, in the, oh dear Lord. (laughs) of it all, because I know that we're going to be fine. The show is going to be great as always, so uh, if you just if you'll please be patient with us, we will be back on March 22nd for the next main feed episode of the podcast, okay? And our plans, by the way, for TV VIP, the $3 a month Patreon series dedicated to TV musical series, that will that will begin, I, I don't know if we've ever said this actually, I was going to say, I, I, I was going to frame this as a reminder, but this is an announcement in and of itself, that we know the opening premiere date for that series now, and that is Wednesday, March 29th. Yes? Yes. Okay, great. I'm getting the thumbs up from Patty and Benny. So, we, we have that established. Big news. Uh, we'll unpack it even further once we come back here to the main feed. But I want to say, uh, here's another thing for you. A mystery has been solved thanks to listener at Cooper's Chew Toy. Thank you, Cooper's Chew Toy. William Daniels was nominated for a Tony Award for his performance in 
1776. But the nomination was for Best Featured or Supporting Actor in a Musical rather than Best Actor, which implies a lead performance. The language for these awards has changed over the years, I should say, and this issue surrounding William Daniels is one of the reasons why that language has changed. The nominating committee reasoned that Daniels was not a lead in 1776 because his name did not appear over the title in promotional materials like the poster, which is bizarre. Anyone who watches 1776 would understand John Adams is the most important character in the show. Daniels was understandably insulted and rejected the nomination out of hand, which is why his name did not appear on the final ballot. So there you go. Ah, oh, and one more follow-up regarding last week's subject. I have come to accept that cool, cool, considerate men is anything but a forgettable piece of music. Ah, I have been singing to the right, ever to the right, for, for days on end. My apologies, Sherman. It is now time for the show facts regarding Carnival. Show me the show facts for Carnival. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Carnival is based on the 1953 MGM film Lily, which features Leslie Caron in the title role, direction by Charles Walters, and a screenplay by Helen Deutsch. Helen's screenplay is based on The Seven Souls of Clement O'Reilly, a film treatment by Paul Gallico that is itself based on The Man Who Hated People, a short story Gallico wrote for the October 1950 edition of the Saturday Evening Post. When Lily proved to be MGM's biggest musical of the year, by earning over $5 million worldwide, Gallico adapted the story into a novella and gave it yet another title, Love of Seven Dolls. I mean, who can blame him? Collect that paper, Gallico. Mind the earth. <laughs> Drain it of its resources. Turn it into a board game for all I care. Do not forget about Helen Dutch, by the way. We're circling back to her very soon, and I apologize if I am mispronouncing that last name. Carnival was the 1962 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on April 13th, 1961 at the Imperial Theater before moving to the Winter Garden Theater in December 1962. The show ran for 719 performances. The book was written by Michael Stewart and is based on material by Helen Dutch. Helen is the one who pitched the idea of a stage musical to producer David Merrick. She wrote several drafts of a libretto, but Merrick felt her vision was, quote, unworkable for the stage, quote, more on Merrick in a moment. Music and lyrics are provided to us by Bob Merrill, who also wrote Take Me Along, Funny Girl, Sugar. Gerard Calvi was initially chosen to write the score for Carnival in the wake of his success with La Plume des Matins, but he struggled with English lyrics and eventually dropped out of the project. The director of the original Broadway production of Carnival was Gower Champion, who M3, the movie musical man listeners, will know as the star of Give Me a... No, not Give Me a Break. Give a Girl a Break, yes. The musical director was Saul Schechtman. Orchestrations, Philip J. Lang. Choreographer, Gower Champion. Scenic design, Will Stephen Armstrong. Lighting design, Will Stephen Armstrong. Sound design, no, nada, nah. Costume design, Freddie Whittup. 
puppet design. Oh, puppet design, Tom Techner. And we also have a designer and supervisor of magic and illusion credit, fancy, for Roy Benson. The original Broadway cast of Carnival was as follows. We have Anna Maria Alberghetti, Kay Ballard, Henry Lasco, James Mitchell, Pierre Olaf, Jerry Orbach, hello, Jerry, Christine Bartle, Nicole Barth, C.B. Bernard, Jennifer Billingsley, Martin Brothers, Carvel Carter, Dean Crane, Bob Dixon, Igor Gavon, Anita Gillette, Tony Gomez, Will Lee, Luba Lisa, Peter Lombard, Iva March, George Marcy, June Mashonek, Bob Murray, Mary Ann Niles, Johnny Nola, Harry Lee Rogers, Betty C.A., Buff Shore, Buff Shore, Buff, my first name is Buff, Paul Slidell, and finally, Pat Tolson. Tony nods. The production won Best Actress in a Musical, which went to Anna Maria Alberghetti, as well as Best Scenic Design, William Stephen Armstrong. The show was additionally nominated for Best Musical, of course, but also Best Author of a Musical, Michael Stewart, Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Pierre Olaf, Best Direction of a Musical, Gower Champion, and Best Producer of a Musical, David Merrick. So, seven nominations in total, two awards, when all was said and done. Anna Maria Alberghetti was hired after David Merrick and Gower Champion reached out to Leslie Caron, the star of MGM's Lily, and Carol Lawrence, who originated the role of Maria in West Side Story. When Merrick refused to let Alberghetti take a break from the show so she could appear in a movie, their relationship quickly soured. Alberghetti eventually fell ill and was hospitalized in August of 1961. In response to this development, Merrick either hired an independent physician to assess her condition or made the actress take a lie detector test, depending on the rumor of the day. Merrick then began to stump for Alberghetti's understudy, Anita Gillette, and he said to the press, David Merrick said, quote, if I'd known Anna Gillette was this good when we were casting, she would have had the part, quote, yeah, well, if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas, David. Upon returning to the show, Alberghetti received a bouquet of roses from Merrick that were either plastic or dead, depending on the rumor of the day. Long story short, fuck David Merrick. Ah, make sure the roses are dead, Louise. Would you accept plastic roses, Mr. Merrick? Well, I don't know. Are they ugly? We can make them very ugly, Mr. Merrick. Oh, <laughs> good. Ugly is good. Regarding Anita Gillette, the publicity surrounding her time as a replacement for Alberghetti led to several parts in premier Broadway musicals, from All American and Mr. President to Kelly and Jimmy. No, none of these shows ran for very long. Kelly infamously closed after a single performance. Ah! Alberghetti, for her part, never returned to Broadway, choosing instead to focus on the cabaret act that made her popular in the first place. Good for her. It's time for the plot of Carnival. Let's do it. Let's unpack this plot. Ooh. We open on the outskirts of a small town, quote, somewhere in southern Europe, quote, a.k.a. France. A carnival is constructed before our very eyes, and an outsider, Lily, wanders beneath the banners and floodlights in search of a job. 
After narrowly avoiding the slimy affections of a souvenir salesman, Lily meets and falls in love with Marco the Magnificent, the carnival's resident magician. She falls in love, I will say, she falls in love with him quickly. Uh, quickly, even by the standards of musical theater. We crossfade to another corner of the carnival, where puppeteer Paul Berthollet performs a new act for manager B.F. Schlegel. The act is undeniably awful, and Paul is fired on the spot. Not that he cares. Life has not been the same since Paul returned from the war with an injury that ruined his prospects as a dancer. And Lily's beguiling innocence only makes him feel more embittered. Paul's only friend, Jaco, convinces him to stay on with the carnival despite Mr. Schlegel's dismissal. Jaco, how is that gonna work? I... I'm very confused. Meanwhile, Marco the Magnificent invites Lily to his trailer for a salacious rendezvous. Uh-oh. His faithful assistant and lover, Rosalie, begins to suspect their relationship is once again on the rocks. Marco convinces Lily to join his magic act, but their first performance goes awry when Lily botches one of the tricks. Marco rejects Lily, and she vows to commit suicide by leaping from the acrobat's ladder. Carnival! Before she can jump, Lily is distracted by the appearance of Carrot Top, a charming little puppet who seeks to console her. Don't do it, Lily! Don't do it! He introduces Lily to his puppet pals, the sentimental, horrible Henry, hello, the vain Marguerite, and the sneaky Reynardo the Fox. Hmm, hello. They invite Lily to become a member of their motley crew, and she accepts, exiting with a newfound spring in her step. Paul steps out of the shadows. My God, he was controlling the puppets the whole time. <laughs> Marco takes Carrot Top from Paul, give me that puppet, and mocks him through the puppet. I'm Paul. I stink like socks. Nobody loves me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Act two. <laughs> if you can believe it, we're already in act two. With Lily by their side, the puppets become one of the biggest attractions at the carnival. I should make something very important, very clear right now. Lily thinks of the puppets as her very dear friend friends, sentient beings who stand apart from Paul. That is a supremely troubling piece of information, I know, so if you need a moment to process, I would understand. Paul finds himself growing fond of Lily, and as that fondness turns into love, his behavior towards her grows increasingly malevolent. Oh no. During a particularly horrible rehearsal, Paul degrades Lily until she has a breakdown, which inspires him to kiss her. Ah, fabulous timing, Paul. A baffled and miserable Lily throws herself at Marco, who agrees to run away with her even though he promised to patch things up with Rosalie. Paul attacks Marco in a fit of jealous rage. Ugh. Lily yells at Paul. Ah! Paul hits Lily. Ah, Jaco condemns Paul for ruining Lily's life. Everyone is having a great time. Carnival. Lily informs Marco that she will be leaving the carnival without him, a decision he quickly comes to respect. Ah, Lily is no longer the foolish child I once knew. Ah! 
As Lily begins to leave, Carrot Top and Horrible Henry appear and beg to come along. Take us with you, Lily! Yes, take us with you! Uh. Lily removes the puppets from Paul's trembling hands, and he steps forward, again with the stepping, to angrily confess his love for her. Angrily is the emphasis I would... That's the key word I should say. I love you. Paul and Lily embrace and return to the carnival, having finally come to terms with one another. Or something. Apparently, in certain iterations of Carnival, certain productions, Lily makes it clear that she always knew Paul was controlling the puppets, but as originally conceived, the character truly believes, I'll say it again, the puppets are real. Wait, the puppets were actually Paul? Wow! I have no idea how you pull this off, but hey, who am I to stand in the way of love between a man and a woman and a man's therapy puppets? No one! Love is love! Carnival! Note Bob Merrill's Carnival, a musical about an abusive man who operates a puppet show and beats the crap out of the woman he claims to love, should not be confused with Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel, a musical about an abusive man who operates a carousel and beats the crap out of the woman he claims to love. You got that? We good? We all on the same page? All right, don't get it twisted. For the purposes of this week's episode, I began by watching the 1953 MGM motion picture Lily. As a reminder, that was directed by Charles Walters. It was written by Helen Dutch, and it stars Leslie Caron, most famously the star of An American in Paris, arguably, as well as Mel Ferrer, Zsa Zsa Gabor, not to be confused with Ava, uh, Gabor, don't get it twisted, Jean-Pierre Aumont, and Kurt Kastner, who, M3, the movie musical man listeners will know, as one of the stars of Give a Girl a Break. Any movie with a premise this weird should not be this dull. The characterizations and elementary story structure make it seem as if Helen Dutch, 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 never read beyond Paul Gallico's film treatment. It's very surface. There's no insight, no sense of curiosity when it comes to the world of the carnival or the people within it. I knew something was deeply wrong when, in this 80-minute movie, I was made to watch the magician's mediocre act from start to finish. Very boring. Very dull. This is how we're choosing to spend our time... As a character, Lily is a disaster in the movie. She's 16 years old, 16, which makes her interactions with the magician and the puppeteer horrifying to watch. And I'm not convinced she has a brain in her skull. Innocence is one thing. You know, I, I, you know I'm green. I'm new to the world. That's one thing. But Lily gapes slack-jawed at everything around her. No one's home if you get my drift. Oh, I must be crazy, Paul. I forget that it's you back there controlling the puppets. She's 16, not six, movie. Come on, movie. But Jonathan, Lily learns about deception and heartbreak and the qualities of real love. She evolves from a simpering waif into an independent woman capable of making her own decisions. That's called growth. I wouldn't call running into the arms of a man who has not said a single kind word to you growth, but go off, I suppose. But Paul is kind, through the puppets. Nothing the puppets say counts. Speaking of kind words, I want to focus on this exchange between Lily and Paul. Lily says she confronts Paul and she says, Why can't you ever say a kind word? Why do you hide behind those puppets? And Paul screams at her, I am the puppets! I'm Carrot Top, confident, clever, capable of running his life and yours and everybody else's. And I'm Golo the Giant, cowardly, stupid, longing to be loved, clumsy, and in need of comforting. And I'm Marguerite, too, 
Vain, jealous, obsessed with self, looking at my face in the mirror. Are my teeth nice? Is my hair growing thin? And I'm Reynardo, a thief, the opportunist, full of compromise and lies. Like any other man, I have in me all these things, all of these things, and as many more again. Must I make a new puppet for the small part of me you've managed to see? The monster, the angry man, the frustrated dancer clumping along with a leg anchored to the ground? But you don't have to understand me or even like me. This is business. I enjoy the overwritten, hysterical melodrama baked into this monologue. It's daffy and risible, but at least we are learning something about one of the characters. Why can't Lily produce a dopey speech like this? And why does Lily consistently face upstage when performing with the puppets? That's not how performing for a live audience works, Lily. I cannot hear you, Lily. Turn around. I do find the puppets to be endearing. They read as more elaborate predecessors to the puppets who populate Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Am I especially partial to Reynardo, the fox who wears a crisp little suit and is obsessed with stealing? Absolutely. I then listened to the 1961 original Broadway cast album of Carnival, and I watched The Ed Sullivan Show. Oh, season 14, episode 27 of The Ed Sullivan Show, which aired on April 16, 1961. I specifically watched the Anna Maria Alberghetti performance of the song Yes, My Heart. The segment features a murderer's row of instantly identifiable gay men. One of them wears a highly revealing tank top, and I am not complaining. Ah, fact! Halbergetti appeared on 15 episodes of The Ed Sullivan Show between 1950 and 1968. This particular episode also featured a performance from the one and only Pearl Bailey. I finished my research by listening to the 1963 original London cast album of Carnival. I'll say this much, Michael Morell is no Jerry Orbach. I say that with full-throated confidence. Oh, no. The London production only ran for 34 performances, which leads me to believe the English do not have much of a taste for cruel puppeteers. I think I'll just go for a point, mate. Maybe some fish and chips, governor. Cheerio! I think it's about that time to start talking about the damn score, alright? Let's start with the first track on the original Broadway cast album, which is known officially as Opening.
opening begins with that slithering, murmuring concertina melody that you heard, the sonic equivalent of a scrumptious scent rising out of a pie and snatching you by the nostrils. The melody is both unnerving and enticing, and once you cross the carnival's threshold, it becomes absorbed by this slab of sound, representing the color and light and hypnotic motion of that location. It kicks ass. I experienced a greater sense of place while listening to this one track of audio than I ever did watching the MGM film. Gower Champion would have you believe the opening is not an overture. No, no, no. An overture, as typically defined, would play out before the curtain rises. But the carnival curtain was raised before anyone entered the theater. Upon arrival, theater goers were confronted by the image of a field and a smattering of trees. And once the show officially began, the cast assembled on stage to build the carnival out piece by piece. That is when they would have heard the piece known as the opening. It's not an overture. Gower Champion's too high-minded for that. Overtures are for amateurs. This is an opening. Pissed, 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 pissed. Hey, Gower, hey. Champion, come here, buddy. A little closer. It's an overture, my man. It's a collage of melodies we hear throughout the evening. Get the fuck over yourself, you big fucking weirdo. Pissed, pissed, pissed. Sing, Rosalie. Raise that golden voice and song. Let them know that Schlegel's Grand Imperial Cirque de Paris has come to town. Direct from Vienna for seven days only at popular prices. These wonders of wonders who's dazzle and daring and fire. commuting to work this past week, I had an instant and positive reaction to Direct from Vienna that was paired with a sizable sense of relief. I thought, oh, thank you. This is actually good. I like this. Woo! You have to understand, the 1953 movie really did a number on me. I wasn't expecting the worst from Carnival, but I was skeptical, 
and all of that baggage was swept away early and easily. I like how this number wastes no time in bringing everyone to the forefront, stacking them on top of each other like cheerleaders forming a human pyramid. Boom, bam, we are here, and we want your money. Give us your money. Perhaps I like Vienna because it reminds me of Magic To Do from Pippin, which includes the same call to action, join us. But I like to think Vienna won me over on its own terms. Comparisons came later, not in the moment. I was too busy living in the moment. Check me out. Now, is there a bit of politically dubious sludge drifting through this number? Indubitably. We are taking, we are making, I should say, a lot of old-fashioned references to Arabian harems and the Orient, and those could certainly be explained away by pointing at carnival culture. These people are grubby hucksters, right? They find no value in sensitivity or subtlety. There's no profit in it. They live on and die on crass pronouncements delivered at the highest possible volume. To wit, to quote the song, quote, Come on, mortgage your house or sell your cow, quote. The explanation certainly tracks, but explanations are not justifications, and there's no way to justify a hat tip to the Orient. Cut it. Cut the Arabian harem stuff. Enough. Look, my friend, do what's best for you. Do what's best for you. Look, my friend, I'm out of step with the rest of you. Is this the answer to your prayer? That's fine. Your prayer, not mine. Your life, not mine. The phony and fake with nothing to take or bring to the world. Just cling to the world for life. Look, my friend, I'm out of step with the rest of you. I've got to find a reason for living on this earth. I've got to find a reason for taking the space I take, breathing the air I breathe. There's more to this, there's more to me, something in me that needs to do more than suck the breath from life like moss and leaves and weeds do. Holding up my head, holding down a place, being worth a name to go with my face. I've got to find a reason for living on this earth. Something to want, something to be. I've got to find a reason may be the broadest and most plain-spoken I want song I have ever encountered. What do I want? I want a reason to live by thunder. I cannot bear taking up space in a world that is so unbearably empty. A sorrowful sentiment, to be sure, but the number is not a drag. It's bright and compelling, especially when performed by Jerry Orbach. Jerry... I'm willing to spend time with Orbach's interpretation of Paul. Do I like the guy? No. Do I feel sorry for the guy? Eh, to a limited extent, sure. I can certainly relate to his loneliness and anger, the way he lashes out at people who are only trying to be nice. So we've established Paul is not a wholly unsympathetic protagonist. Marvelous. I do, however, draw the line at protagonists who hid women. Do I require my ingenues to be Teflon saints? No. 
What I require is some form of comeuppance, a trial by fire, pushback from the universe that makes a happy ending feel earned. The problem with Paul's arc is that he gets exactly what he wants without having to suffer the consequences of his actions. So he has to deal with Lily's temporary absence. This we call suffering? Billy Bigelow. Now there's a guy who got his comeuppance. Carousel understands what needs to happen to men who hit women. You want to hit women? Fine. Die. You deserve to be stabbed or shot or whatever it is that happens to Billy Bigelow and Carousel, I forget. The messaging of Carousel is fucked up for a number of reasons, but they do kill Billy. You gotta give him that. Does Paul deserve to die? Maybe. Maybe. If you're bad, bad things should happen to you, but that's not how the world works. Ah, shush. Ooh, before I forget, these carnival songs are so short. Two and a half to three minutes, tops across the board, it's amazing. They each have a goal in mind, and they pursue those goals with the zeal of a racehorse. And more importantly, the songs manage to be satisfying at this length. Efficiency in songwriting is something I've really come to admire over the last few years. I do not believe in the 40-hour work week, and I do not believe in the five-minute song if it can do more in half the time. I come from the town of Mira, beyond the bridges of St. Clair. I guess you've never heard of Mira. It's very small, but still, it's there. They have the very greenest streets and skies as bright as flame. But what I like the best in Mira is everybody knew my name. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Everybody knew my name. A room that strange is never cozy. A place that strange is never sweet. I want to have a chair that knows me and walk a street that knows my feet. I'm very far from me now, and there's no turning I have to find a place, I've got to find a place where everything can be the same. A street that I can know and places I can go where everybody knows my name. Can you? Maria Alberghetti demonstrates a stunning vocal range throughout her many appearances on the Broadway album. 
the intimacy she establishes during Mira is startling. I feel as if I am sitting next to Lily in the shadow of the Ferris wheel. I want to wrap a blanket around this character, whip up a hot meal for her, keep her the hell away from seething time bombs like Paul. Lily is talking about her desire for community, belonging to a place like she belonged to her hometown. Lily wants people in her life who know her by name, people she can greet in the morning and bid adieu as the sun goes down. Who among us is not yearning for some version of this? Acceptance, comfort, security. I believe Paul wants all of these things. I believe that, but Paul deserves to die, possibly by drowning, so there's not much I can do for him. I hope those lungs of yours enjoy being filled with pond water, Paul. Julie Andrews would have massacred this part, by the way. Julie Andrews as Lily? Holy shit, she'd be on trial for murder. Here's to the son of a bee, Trala. Oh, what he's doing to me, Trala. Draining the blood from each vein. Aha! Torture and anguish and pain. Aha! Why don't I have any brain? Aha! Here's, Here's to, to the, the son, son of a bee. trailer he'll be humming he'll grin a little grin force a little laughter nonchalant and casual as a bride the morning after my innocent my saint my darling baby boy batting his eyelashes like an aging here's to the miserable dog Trala. And to his raven black curls. Trala. I only live for the day. Trala. His hair will be thinning and gray. Trala. Or better than that, a toupee. Ha ha ha! Here's to the miserable dog. I'm not sure how you would cut humming down for an audition, but if you're gunning for Ilona in She Loves Me or Adelaide in Guys and Dolls, this song is totally in keeping with the spirit of those characters. The man I love is a bottomless pit into which I pour my valuable affections. Why do I do this to myself? I'm gonna bite his neck! The lovesick comic ingenue. We do not pay nearly enough respect to that archetype, Everyone adores the lovesick comic ingenue. It's a plum position. The tralas are edible delectables. Weary asides that compliment Rosalie's thoughts. Here's to the son of a bee, trala, for what he's doing to me, trala. Those tralas should be lighter than air, trala. <laughs> I guess I guess when I do it, I'm sick, so they're a little heavy when I when I do it. Shirley Sands of the London album plays up Rosalie's anger from note one and and never alters her course, which isn't nearly as entertaining as Kay Ballard trying and failing to maintain her composure. Here's to the son of a bee, Trala, is a lot better than here's to the son of a bee, Trala. Give yourself somewhere to go, Shirley. Oh my god, we just got started. Ordinarily I'm meek, but I could raise a fuss and shriek. See the Take a bite, but 
not know what I was missing from Yes, My Heart until they showed up with less than a minute on the shot clock. I'm talking about the Roustabouts, the Ed Sullivan fellas who serve as Lily's backup singers. They are officially credited as Roustabouts. Let us credit the actors themselves properly. Tony Gomez, George Marcy, Johnny Nola, and Buff Shore. Buff, buff, buff. You boys are turning up the wattage, I tell ya. And they blend so well with Anna Maria Alberghetti. Tell me something, tell me something. Put that run on a plate. Anything that reminds me of marry me, marry me, from Kiss Me Kate is gunning for my affections. Oh, run, boys, run. Who can I be now that I can't be me anymore? Shall I be the sunny, smiling fellow who won't rock the boat cause he might splash the ocean but sit there and cheerfully twitter? Cause someone might say, see that man over there, he's bitter. When will I learn to be like you? Everybody likes you. Everybody likes you. You're a lucky fellow. You're a lucky fellow. The secret is your smile. I ought to have a smile. That smile takes quite a knack. I think I need a smile, and who cares if it's real or painted with shellac? A smile full of theatrics for easily agreeing. Two eyes with acrobatics to see the way they're seeing. Let's turn about, you say the words for me. 
Cause everybody likes you Everybody likes you And no one, no one likes me No one, no one likes me Everybody likes you And no one, no one likes me Ha! Hmm, Paul cannot figure out what he needs to do in order for people to like him I could be more like my puppets. Yeah, that's one idea. Or maybe, hear me out on this, maybe you could stop abusing women verbally, physically, in any sense. We're not sifting through a shipwreck in search of a solitary pearl, Paul. I believe the solution to your problem is pretty easily identified. Paul genuinely cracks me up. What a flop. What a feeb. The blue-balled incels of the modern world would fight to lick his boots, no doubt. I hope David Merrick knew how blessed he was to have Jerry Orbach on board. No one else could have applied that much poise and charm and sensitivity to a character this unappealing. The imperfect character is a feature of the narrative, not a bug. Uh, I say, why not both? The rich put cream on their berries. The rich drive shiny black cars. The rich go here. The rich go there. It's close to their truth. But far from fair The rich stay cozy all winter Stay cold the month of July But for all of the world We wouldn't switch We're glad we're rich Okay, Lily, I didn't know you could sing like that You just hit a high C I'm sorry, Carrot Top, I won't do it again He meant that as a compliment, dear But if you girls are able to reach a C I, of course, have been known to reach high M above L I'll never forget when I was playing Carmen in Aida The rich put cream on their berries The rich drive shiny black cars The rich go here, the rich go there It's close to the truth Oh, what at Aida in Carmen? The rich stay cozy all winter Stay cold the month of July But for all of the world We wouldn't switch Of course my best role was Barbara of Seville <laughs> We're The puppets are perfecto I'm here to say it I have no notes on the puppets Carrot Top, Horrible Henry, Reynardo, Icons, one and all But Marguerite is the leader of the pack in my estimation she keeps bragging about how she played Carmen and Aida, or was it Aida and Carmen? If you love Miss Piggy, you are gonna fucking love Marguerite. This I guarantee. Does anyone remember Madam? Wayland Flowers' Madam? The salacious, audacious puppet with a flair for the dramatic? Madam had a sitcom in the 80s. Madam's Place. It ran for 50, 52 episodes. I think about Madam every now and then. Madam was a whole thing back in the 80s, but she left zero cultural footprint. Poor Madam. Anyway, I can understand why Lily would want to hang out with the puppets. What I do not understand is how she manages to separate them from Paul to a point where she views them as 
Saying it for the third time, real. Am I overlooking something here? Uh, do I have this wrong? If so, I blame Wikipedia, which says, quote, Lily still has not put together that the puppets she loves so much and who are so nice to her are, in fact, the hated Paul. Quote, pretty hard to misinterpret that. That's what I needed Just what I needed Someone's hand reaching out for mine A helpless thing depending on me Depending on me to bear its burden Clothe and feed it, practically carry it A grown-up girl with a mind of a child Depending on me Measuring me, staring at me, measuring me Everywhere I look, I can see her face I can see her face, see it everywhere And when I close my eyes, it stays and like a leaf whirls on a wind around my mind it plays if in my two hands i could hold her face while my fingertips kiss her eyes and lips and make them love and light and show But that would take two other hands, not mine. That would take two other hands, not mine. Because it bears repeating, uh, Paul says the following, he sings the following throughout her face, quote, That's what I needed, just what I needed. Someone's hand reaching out for mine, a helpless thing depending on me, depending on me to bear its burden, clothe and feed it, practically carry it, a grown-up girl with the mind of a child depending on me, measuring me, staring at me, measuring me. Quote, hear ye, hear ye, death by drowning. Lily is not a sparrow with a broken beak. She does not need you to feed her with an eyedropper, you manhunter freak. There's a surprising amount of this hyper-specific masculine energy within the canon, this desire for pretty young girls who need to be educated and introduced, groomed, one might say, introduced to the world by an older man. I'm not super familiar with Gigi, but I'm pretty sure that's what Gigi is about. Uh, let me check. Yep, that's what Gigi's about, all right. It would be one thing if Lily and Paul were similarly angry, dysfunctional people who can take as much abuse as they dish out. I would be willing to watch those characters come to terms with one another, but Lily is a purely good person, and seeing her get pushed around is not my idea of entertainment. Next week, we play Dijon. Then Toulon will hear of us 
then Lyon, then Marseille, and then Paris. The Grand Imperial Cirque de Paris, Cirque de Paris, Cirque de Paris, a troupe established by royal decree. The jewel of the continent's traveling circuses, international stars of renown, the finest artists, 70 beasts, a million thrills in a wild potpourri, Imperial Cirque de Paris. Wake up, everybody. We're going to play Paris. It's going to be the Cirque de Paris again. Cirque de Paris. Ah, Cirque de Paris. All we need is one good act, and Paris will demand to see us. The jewel of the continent's traveling circuses, international stars of renown. The finest artists. 200 beasts, a million thrills in a wild potpourri. Imperial Cirque de Paris. wanted us to hear Grand Imperial Cirque de Paris so we could shine a light on these lyrics. Quote, a million thrills in a wild potpourri, Imperial Cirque de Paris. Quote, that right there is a gem of a line. I really like that line. All right, let's keep it moving, people. To say I 
I care about Rosalie and Marco's on-again, off-again, on-again, off-again courtship would be a stretch, but I definitely care about always, always you. That is some cozy cable-knit stuff right there, and once again, I am all about the repetition. I love how they sing always, 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 always you. That oh-so-steady rhythm, the gentle escalation, the emphasis on and insistence of the emotions at play. And how about Rosalie's sad reprise? Can we hear some of that? Life is strange A man can change The years could find me But all the same, I'll dress for rain. Always, 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 you. How is it possible that Kay Ballard was not nominated for a Tony? How? Before we close out our deconstruction of the score, could we dip into one of the bonus tracks from the Broadway album? I would like to hear Magic Magic, if you please. sure this would have played underneath Marco the Magician's magic act, but to me it's lounge music for a 1960s international space station, and I dig that shit. That's all I have to say regarding the score of Carnival. It is now time for our fine, fine sponsor, 555678. Five, five, it's time for them to step up to the plate and have a few words, so take it away, 5678. Louis, Louis, we have five minutes to get ready. This is crazy. Louis, why couldn't you tell me that? You couldn't just said Carol, Carol Kane. You've got five minutes before you've got to be in the Wicked. 
But here I am, and I'm not even in costume yet. Oh, for God's sake, Louis, for, get out of here. Get, here, sign these posters for I'm Mordecai. I have to get into my Madame Morable costume. Oh, dear Lord. Oh, Louis, where's my coffee? I gotta have my five, six, seven, eight, Louis. The show won't go if Carol don't have her Joe. Ooh, thank you very much, Louis. Thank you very much, Louie. I'm not being sarcastic. Yum, yum, yum. Okay, so I gotta get ready. Holy shit. Oh, I've been so busy with I'm Mordecai that I, I've, I've completely forgotten about my, my, my responsibilities with Wicked. Where's my spooky wig? Okay, there's my spooky wig. Gotta get that on my head. Oh, okay. And what about my spooky dress? Louie, where's my spooky dress? Oh, there it is. Oh, thank God. Ah, and my spooky boobs. Oh, no. I left my spooky boobs in the car. Oh, no. Uh, I gotta get my spooky boobs uh, out of my way. Out of my way. It's Carol Kane coming through. I gotta get my spooky boobs. Uh, okay, okay, Carol. Just calm down. You're here with the car. Yes. Now, where did you put them? Were they in the trunk? Were the spooky boobs in the trunk? Yes, here they are. Oh, spooky boobs. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to forget you. Ah, uh, come on. Uh, come on. Let's race back into the theater boobs. Come with me, boobies. Oh, ah, out of my way. Carol Kane coming through. I'm Madame Murabur. Okay, where's the, where's the dressing room? There it is. Ah, Louie, help me get these boobies on. Oh, yeah, my spooky boobies. Tuck them under my dress. Do I got my wig on? Fantastic. How about another sip of that coffee? Yum, 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 yum. It's my favorite coffee in the world. Five, six, seven, eight coffee. You can count on it, and the audience can count on me to be the best Madame Marble they've ever seen in their lives. Now, where's the grimmery? I can't go on stage without my grimmery. Final thoughts regarding Carnival. The Carnival team, minus David Merrick, fuck off David, is to be commended. They took a bad movie and turned it into a good musical. The songs managed to smooth out the speed bumps in the story, which is no small feat. That's it. Those are all the final thoughts I have for you. Now, in 1962, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, and the additional nominees that season were Milk and Honey and No Strings, which we have already covered here on the podcast. You know, we gotta keep handing that medallion to No Strings. You know we gotta do that. I'm sorry. How to Succeed in Business? No. You are no longer the best musical of 1962. We're handing that to no strings. We've done that in the past, right? Well, even if we haven't, let's pretend as if we did. Congrats, no strings. Ah, we only have one show remaining in this set of nominees, y'all. Y'all, when are we going to talk about how to succeed in business? I don't know. <laughs> I forget. I, it'll come up eventually. Let's rank Carnival against all of the other shows we've talked about here on the main feed. As always, if you want to take a look at this ranking of ours, go to twitter.com slash musicalmanpod. You'll access our link tree, which will take you to our spreadsheet. Ooh, our Google spreadsheet, the second tab of which provides all of that ranking info. Carnival, you are going to go right under our most recent subject, 1776. 1776 is at number 60, Carnival is at 61, and Once is at number 62. Ah! As far as show-related ephemera is concerned, I was fully prepared to play clips of Dion, Jackson, Madonna, and the Powerpuff Girls singing their respective versions of Love Makes the World Go Round. I pulled all of the audio. I did. I was so ready, but... 
We already heard all of those songs during our coverage of Me and My Girl. We heard like, how many was it? Like nine versions of Love Makes the World Go Round in that episode, including the one from Carnival. I don't even think I fully understood that Carnival was a subject that we would have to tackle one day. Man, I don't know what was going on. Do not ignore deja vu. That is the lesson, people. If you experience deja vu, investigate it. Figure out why. What's going on? So what else can I offer you if not all of those variations on Love Makes the World Go Round? Well, I pulled this 1983 ad for New York's Aqueduct Racetrack, which features Jerry Orbach. Beautiful bean footage, go! Was the day after Christmas, and out at Big A, the track begins giving these glasses away. Six in all. Get a different one each day, every weekday at Aqueduct. And gifts on the weekend, too. December 31st, this fabulous wall calendar. New Year's Day, our official desk diary. So come out to Aqueduct and walk off with the store. It's our way of saying, have a great 84. There's something unseemly about Orbach shilling for mass-produced glassware and calendars. I'm not saying the mob was involved with this ad, but uh, you never know. <laughs> but wait, there's more. No, how about a 1977 ad, we're going back in time, for the RCA Color Track TV featuring Miss Leslie Caron. Leslie Caron for Color Track by RCA. In Gigi, my brooch was blue, the leaves were green, and my gown was lavender lace. If these colors don't look right to you, you should know about Color Track from RCA. Getting the color right is what Color Track is all about. It actually adjusts the colors and locks them on track. Before you see the color, the Color Track system grabs it, aligns it, defines it, sharpens it, tones it, and locks the color on track. I can get behind the Tron music in this ad, but Mr. VO over here needs to rein it the hell in. Before you see the color, the Color Track system grabs it, aligns it, defines it, sharpens it, tones it, and locks the color on track, motherfucker. All right, breathe, buddy, breathe. Coron is in full Gigi drag in this commercial, by the way. I'm not her biggest fan, but she does not deserve this. Why did this happen? Oh, Leslie. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Jupiter's Bastard. Everyone ready? Then away we go. I'll say it again, mark your calendars. This next episode of the main feed will not drop until March 22nd. So take a break, take a breather, relax, okay? And when we come back on March 22nd, we're going to be talking about a 1988 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran for 597 performances, and the name of that show is Serafina. Ah, another show title with an exclamation point. Serafina. Ah, I'm so excited. I'm not familiar with that show. I'm excited to hear the two cast albums. I want to watch the movie, of course. So we're going we're gonna to tackle all of that on March 22nd. Meanwhile, hey, if you want some more material from the musical man and you're not a patron already, do me a favor. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. You can donate $1, 3 5 or $10 a month. 
If you donate $1 a month, you get Monday early access to all of these main feed episodes. Everyone else is going to have to wait until Wednesday, but you, you're going to get them on Monday, actually. The last few episodes I've released basically on Sunday afternoon or night, so sometimes you get them even earlier than expected. You get a verbal shout-out as a $1 a month patron. Every week you get a verbal shout-out. Thank you, Caroline, Helena, Greg, Andy, Elizabeth, Aaron, Jason, Jack, Vitor, Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marques, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. As a $1 a a month tier patron. You also get 19 bonus episodes all about the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, The Little Mermaid Live, a review of the film Cats, Emma at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, Hamilton via Disney+, Plus, Documentary Now, Original Cast Album, Co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, Arlo the Alligator Boy, the trailer for West Side Story 2021, Vivo, the Tony Awards present Broadway back, Diana, Annie Live, The Notebook at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, and Beauty and the Beast, a 30th celebration. But we're not done. You also get season one, that's 12 episodes of Radio Boy, a series for which I check in with myself via the non-musical theater songs that make me feel more like myself, and you get all 16 episodes in the now-complete M3, the Movie Musical Man series. Uh, What do we do for that? Well, we watch trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. If you donate three $3 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. All 10 episodes in the Wildcats Everywhere series, which is dedicated to the high school musical franchise, and a special one-off all about Julie and the Phantoms. Remember, beginning Wednesday, March 29th, ah, that's when the brand new $3 a month series TV VIP will premiere. That is a series dedicated to TV musicals. Oh, I'm so excited. $5 a month will get you everything I've already described, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss on the podcast. You get seasons one and two, that's 24 episodes of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by The Phantom of the Opera. You get all 14 episodes in our Broadway in Chicago review series, as well as volumes one through five of Shout About It. Those are collections, compendiums, if you will, of five, six, seven, eight coffee ads and musical shoutouts from the first 125 episodes of the show. Finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus exclusive announcements regarding future subjects of the main feed, all 12 episodes in Season 1 of The Snub Club, a series dedicated to musicals that were not nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical, and all 12 episodes in Turn It Off, a series dedicated to off-Broadway musicals. If you're listening to the show via Apple or Podchaser, please take a moment to write a five-star review. You can stream the show via Spotify, Stitcher, or Audible, or Podbean, musicalmanpod.pod. Podbean.com. Follow us on Twitter at MusicalManPod and email me at MusicalManPod at gmail.com. Thanks as always to Patty and Benny in the booth, Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and Zach Little for our fabulous intro and outro music. Well, you know what that sound means, though. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night.
Joy, dear, but keep eating her those breadcrumbs. We don't want her flying. 